Welcome to this week's episode of Juice in the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, one of your critiques, Joshua Tracy. And I'm one of your critics, Warren Heller. And welcome to the show. Uh, we are here today to talk about the um, 19 fucking 96 film the birdcage and the 2004 film the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind corwin heller do you want to start goofy and gay or sad and straight corwin you might have muted yourself because i don't hear shit Where you want and to be. I'm Corwin Heller. No, um, oh, that would have worked if I had confidence in the ability to speak in full sentences, but I have neither, so that sucked. Sorry. Let's talk about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. All right, starting sad and straight. Uh, all right, this film was uh, came out in 2004. It was directed by Michael Gondry. Uh, it was written by Charlie Kaufman, Michael Gondry, and Pierre Bismuth which sounds like a man who is also a stone. Uh, this film stars Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet, and Tom Wilkinson. Some other interesting appearances from uh, hot young actors of the time, such as Elijah Wood and Kirsten Dunst, so, and Mark Ruffalo. Almost forgot Mark Ruffalo. And a, and a uh, cameo, basically, by David Cross. Love, love David Cross mm-hmm. anytime he's in anything. I love that David Cross is really really into just pushing marijuana on other folks it's what his uh yeah what he does. What his life's about you know if he was canadian he'd really have a shot at taking someone's seth robin's market share but oh no <laughs> uh all right this movie had an estimated budget of 20 million dollars and a cumulative worldwide gross of 74 million dollars which certainly makes this movie a success i think uh, while looking at this my gut reaction is or the, one of the first things that comes to mind is this idea that when you see something above, you know, 15, 20 million bucks and not have an over $100 million return, I think part of, cause I don't know, th- that looked to me like, Oh, 75, that's, that's an okay return. Um, mm-hmm. When in reality it's over tripling your money. And I think part of my reaction being that is due to the influx of mega blockbusters that just, you know, compound their, returns so heavily whereas there was a very significant chunk of time where this was a success like a, a exactly what you were going for exactly what was getting made you know a lot of these things that, that did well but weren't like you know huge huge draws this weird cross between an indie flick with concept and a major studio film with budget you know it's a interesting mm-hmm. time period it is honestly i have heard about this movie going back years i've never seen it before this i had no idea what to expect and it was nothing that i like oh, even hold on, hold on we're not even done with the intro yet oh man you're, you're right jumping the gun you little bitch when don't i uh the tagline Oh, that's such a sad tagline. It's such a sad movie. The tagline is, I already forget how I used to feel about you. Oh, that's 
It's a really good tagline. That that's might really be the good. best tagline we've uh, ever read on this show, like but that. fuck, that is so sad. Oh my god. All right. Uh, this movie won one Oscar on the back of two nominations. It won for best writing original screenplay for Charlie Kaufman, Michael Gondry, and Pierre Bismuth. And was also nominated for best performance by an actress in a leading role uh, for Kate Winslet. Uh, she lost that year. Because, yeah, out of curiosity, we don't usually do who won in a given year, but why not? Mm-hmm. She lost that year to Hillary Swank for Million Dollar Baby, in case anyone was mm. curious. Uh, Never lock baby inside a car outside in the summer. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't, don't you do it. But put them in this the movie okay. is about when their relationship turns sour, a couple undergoes a medical procedure to have each other erased from their memories. This was my movie, so I'll get us started. So this is a movie I haven't seen since I was pretty young. I don't know, maybe like 15 sounds right. And I remember very distinctly not liking it because it was there was too it was too frenetic. And I didn't know how it made me feel. And that made me mad when I was 15. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a fucking perfect way to surmise what being a 15-year-old is. I don't know what these emotions are, so I'm angry. So I will translate all of them to anger. (laughs) And so I haven't seen this since, even though since then I've become like a Charlie Kaufman fan. Like I've rewatched Adaptation a whole bunch of times. I've rewatched Being John Malkovich a whole bunch of times. We talked about it. This is our second Charlie Kaufman film of the podcast when we talked about I'm Thinking of Ending Things a few months ago. And I like I I am a fan and I've never taken the time to revisit this one, I think, because I was a little bit afraid of the weightiness of it. And I got to say. My interpretation of it. This time, because, you know, I last I haven't seen this in over a decade. That's not even really interpretation is, you know, so much as the point of the movie is this is actually a very happy movie. (laughs) I mean, or at least the, the message of it. The, the the ultimate point of the story is very positive. And it's something that, you know, I think on its surface, and I say this again, not having seen it in a decade, and, you know, last time I saw it, it was literally fucking 15. What the fuck do you know at 15? Um, but Very little. Very little. But I, I got to say, you know, the, the overall tone has so much gloom and so much anguish. And the story that takes place outside of Jim Carrey's brain in regards to the people that literally surround his body while he is dreaming mm-hmm. experience so much negative uh, feeling around their given relationships that I think it's easy for the surface of this to be so dark. But I mean, really, again, I, I, I was about to say when you think about it, like it's some kind of deep fucking point when it's not. But, you know, really like like. You know, the point of this film being how desperately these two feel this connection that they're doing their best to overcome a mistake like like what they feel as though they've made by trying to erase each other from their memories and you know some combination of I don't know fate or soulmate kind of deal with that or, or um, if you're a little bit less I don't know superstitious or or prone to um, 
magic, <laughs> I guess. Just the idea of that, you know, really intrinsic value of, of that other person that, that keeps Jim Carrey fighting until the literal last moments that he possibly could to try to maintain some memory of this woman. And same thing with Kate Winslet doing, going through uh, a post facto, but nonetheless still much the same kind of internal battle of trying to recall Jim Carrey and understanding that her emotions she feels after the procedure are not necessarily the emotions she wants to feel or needs to feel. And, you know, this movie really being about the two of them being drawn together, fighting to stay together under shit circumstances. But even though, while those circumstances were still brought upon by them, by themselves, uh, it's, it's a really interesting look. It's a very, very different kind of romance movie. Um, Corwin, why don't you yes, tell me is. about it now? Um, I forgot all the points the I was going to make. Time and yeah, place, bitch. it's okay because I've already completely forgotten about uh, everything I was going to say, you know, a minute and a half ago. Um, I will say the romantic aspect of this is obviously it's very different from almost all other romantic comedies because the goal of most other romantic comedies is hope and inspiration. And this is more of, hey, these people aren't necessarily right for each other. It's just they don't have really anyone else that fits with them. And this is what happens when you go through a relationship that isn't always great all the time. And guess what? People get upset and want to end things and do irrational things because of it. And guess what? When the technology exists to do something like this, people will take advantage of it, even if they don't necessarily mean it. And it was a really, really cool way to... God, I hate that I just described this as really, really cool. <laughs> it's a very interesting way. Super to look fucking at... nifty, bro. Oh, dude. <laughs> You're so nice. This is nice. That was a really nice day. Nice. Is that what uh, Joel says all the time? He just always yeah. describes it as nice. Yeah, they had that big conversation on the train in the beginning about the all the nice. Nice. Uh, well, it's actually not the very beginning. It's like uh, the very end. So, you know, time is just a flat circle, Josh. Um, but I thought it was a really cool way to approach the idea of the coming to realization of what someone means to you and looking through all of the negatives that really stick out that really hide all of those bright moments and those positive feelings that you feel, you know, 90% of the time, but just get kind of covered up and you get distracted from those positive moments by those fights those arguments those negative feelings the insecurities and all the little things that come with an imperfect relationship um and i just really enjoyed this movie i wasn't expecting to knowing what i know about it and you know everything involved of hey let's just have a movie about heartbreak i was expecting to really hate this and it ended up being a really really beautiful story a nice beautiful story so to approach it, I guess, a little bit from a, from a plot perspective um, or storyline, I don't know. What do you think of the fact that the first sequence that you see ends up actually being the end of the movie at the end? Oh, it's great. I think it, especially because it is something involving 
memory and and the idea of presence or losing the past i think the idea of opening this up as that reintroduction to one another and coming to the realization of what montauk specifically you know means to each of them i think it's a really well done and effective use of this i know it's been in a couple movies that we've watched um to varying levels of success but i thought it was really well done here i think part of the reason it works so well is you know when you're watching this in the you know linearly for the first time you assume and i obviously correctly so you have no reason to assume otherwise that this is how they meet you know jim carrey clearly in some type of rut is like fuck whatever i'm doing i gotta i gotta go to montauk which is something no one says (laughs) well i mean quinn is physically in montauk right now I, I know, but she is there because there is something there for her. And no one's like, I got to escape. Are you saying there was and nothing gonna... there for each of them? What? I'm saying for most people, no one's like, you know, I got to get away to Montauk. It's like, hey, my, my, my uncle's got a house in Manasquan. I go there every summer. And I, I, I got to say, man. As someone who has been going to Manasquan since I was a child, no one should ever say, I got to get a Manasquan. <laughs> like, uh, having been to Manasquan with you, yeah, don't skip over Manasquan. And I love it's... going to Manasquan. I absolutely love it. It's, it's, it's like a second home in a lot of ways. But at the same time, man, there's no reason for anybody to be like, I, I got I to gotta get to Manasquan. <laughs> there's no reason for anybody to say, I, I, I just got to get to Montauk. So... A little bit of a tri-state geography for folks who are willing to Google some shit. Yeah. Um, hey, Josh, um, I don't know if we've had this fight before, but what do you consider the tri-state area? We have had this conversation a couple times because of where we geographically grew up. The tri-state area is New York, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. But if you live in certain parts of New York or certain parts of Connecticut, then the tri-state area becomes New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. It depends. And those people are assholes. Yeah, those it's people yeah. are wrong. They're wrong. Just yes. go join Boston. You know you want to. Ooh. Connecticut's to fair, my, just whiter Boston. To be fair, my old college roommate, Dan, uh, who is an avid listener of the podcast, is from Connecticut, and he's a Boston fan. So you can see how that goes. At least he's consistent. The worst type of person from Connecticut is someone who's like, yeah, I'm a Patriots and Yankees fan. And it's like, oh, so you suck as a person. Well, no, good. I'm right in between the stadiums. And it's like, yeah, well, you can just shove that up your ass and die and like get out of here. Anyway, this is not the sports podcast. That's oh, God. It feels like though with this massive deviation we just took. Uh Yes, it does. To get back to the point, you know, it 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 works so well because you know Jim Carrey urgently needing to get out there, I think, is you know a relatable feeling in of its in a vacuum. It's a relatable feeling because we all go through ruts where we want to suddenly and abruptly change up our schedule. So it's not like you know the motivation for him to do that is so hard to wrap your your head around. And then it works effectively as a meet cute. You know, they 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 both are in Montauk, and it's like, hey, what the fuck are you doing here in winter? This town is occupied exclusively by rich white folk during the summer. Uh, And, you know, then when you end up 
you know, seeing how they actually meet later on the film is almost disorienting because you still have that so stuck in your head. And then to see how the movie ends up actually ending, it really kind of, I don't know, what, what do you make of the use of that repetition there? Do you think it's just there to be nifty or do you, do you have a, you get a reaction out of it? Um, I think it's just, I like repetition. I think it's a really effective way of driving home a point. I mean, when I write, I use repetition consistently. Um, I think it's just a really, really effective way to drive points home and, and to really ensure that the message is getting across. And I just think that's, you know, in film especially, having those reoccurring themes, reoccurring moments, little, you know, itty bitty things, um, or even, you know, major things, that repetition is, you know, you see something once in a film that's like, okay, I don't know if I should be paying attention to that, if that's going to be important, or if it's just, you know, fluff. You repeat those themes, you repeat those, you know, overarching plot lines and it's oh okay this is something i should be paying attention to noticing things like that so that's what i think yeah i i i feel like i'm close to having an i an idea or a thought for what maybe something of a larger point is there you know something along the lines of maybe your impulses could potentially be drawn about by, you know, some intrinsic feeling or uh, some level of attachment, subconscious attachment to another person, you know. And obviously, that's very direct there in the film. She whispers Montauk or Montauk or some shit. But I don't know. I I, I think it's dually effective because again, it's it's so easily readily acceptable to just call that a. Uh, need to move need to to shake up a routine and also you know the this inception like seed that had been planted is this where christopher nolan got it from who knows uh, uh if only there was themes from films like memento and inception and other christopher nolan films that all come back to this movie i think i honestly was watching this and like man christopher nolan must fucking adore this movie <laughs> uh yeah, I, 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 you know what? The more I think about it, the more, yeah, you're right. Because uh, so much of this film is like just the, the visual feast that is Jim mm-hmm. Carrey and Kate Winslet running around in his memory. And like the scene where Jim Carrey is floating through that four dimensional bookcase and then gets sucked into a black hole and then is with his 80 year old daughter, like that is just pure Christopher Nolan. And then after they go on that that date to, to the frozen river and he spins that top on the river and then the movie just ends on that spinning top. Well, did you see the after uh, credit scene where the movie actually doesn't end because the top falls over and then it immediately cuts to the Joker just laughing in your face? Does it look like I have a plan? Yeah, yeah, that was a good moment. That was good. Just like when they collected all the pieces to become the time travel go backwards people. Yeah, great, great, great movie. Great movie. Love it. Love it to death. Uh and Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> I just love it when they were in World War II. <laughs> oh. um. The scene where they're chasing each other 
in those P-52 Mustangs just trying to, you know, escape Nazi Germany or Nazi France at that point. <laughs> oh, love it. Vichy France. <laughs> Vichy France. Ah, oh, the Vichys. The worst of the French. <laughs> the French that even hated France more than, well, the French, but they are. Okay. All right. We're going to move on. Moving on. So I, I enjoy that there wasn't any dialogue on Kate Winslet's end about getting the memory erase procedure. I like that Jim Carrey is just talking to fucking uh, God damn it. What's his David name? I just Cross. said David, David. Yeah, thank you. David Cross. And he's like, she didn't know who I was. And then they get into that whole thing, because I think it, on one end, it makes it seem a little bit more impulsive on the on the end of Kate Winslet, which I think fits her character well. And also, I like the idea that everyone's just like, yeah, this is a thing that people do. And and they just kind of go into it. And it also, I think, makes it more about, from Jim Carrey's perspective, the idea that sometimes the irrational things your partner does in the relationship that bother you, make you sad, make you reciprocate in kind without maybe fully considering all of the the steps, the consequences, everything that would go into a fully made decision because they made you feel emotionally a certain kind of way. So I... I really like how almost rushed that kind of part of the movie is. It helps also move the plot along, but I think it also serves a, a good character purpose there too. And I think it does a much better job of kind of helping the viewer go through that pain themselves and kind of connect with Joel in that aspect, feel what it's like for Joel, you know, to go through this and to have it be such a shock thinking, you know, she just disappeared, doesn't know what happened, just like is freaking out about this change of character and her cheating on him. And then finding out out of nowhere that no, she completely erased you from her memory altogether. And that must be utterly terrifying and just a complete mental breakdown. And I think having that be a surprise for the audience and not, you know, like with movies, you see things and you have information that not all the characters have. You have a more complete understanding of the situation than, you know, nine times out of 10, any other individual character. And the instances where you're on the other side of that, that one time out of 10, when you're thrown on your ass with a twist like this, it's not even a twist. It's just a punch in the face it allows you to really feel that pain more than just the anticipation of that coming. You're anticipating Joel's reaction and like, you understand how hard it is, but you are seeing it from the other perspective first. So you're not shocked by it. You're not, you know, turned over by it. You understand it more and you're just anticipating the reaction from the per- people who don't know. Right. Versus being a part of it, being, you know, standing next to him, receiving this news and just getting punched in the face. Pop, 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 pop. Knock, knock, open up the door. It's real. I immediately went to pop, pop from community. community. Yeah. Yep. Pop, pop. All right, anyway, Cora and I can sit here and just make references for each other for an entire episode. 
Which but we should at some point. At some point. So we talked about the beginning of this movie. We talked about the end of this movie. So I guess we'll actually finish up on the middle. And there's, there's really, I guess, uh, two things left to talk about about the middle in a large sense. Um, obviously, there's a million sm- small things we could talk about this. And whenever we have a movie that has this much going on in it, we always say we could sit over here and talk about it for hours. But that podcast would not be practical. And I don't think either of our schedules would allow it. So... Um, one of the main subplots of this movie is what is going on in Jim Carrey's apartment while he is asleep, getting his memories zapped back to Asgard. And it largely surrounds a, well, I guess two relationships, one of which is Elijah Wood, who plays a douchebag super well. And it's very odd. Surprisingly I'm, well. I'm so used to him being like so meek in everything I see him in. I feel like he's so meek in this one. He's, well, I mean, he's obviously a, a meek asshole, <laughs> but he still plays an asshole. He's still playing an asshole, but boy, is he still meek. <laughs> he, yeah, he's still a bitch at the end, but it's not a um, sad meek. It's just a, an, an evil meek. He, he was corrupted by the ring. Sam. Uh, anyway, um, so he's got that going on, which I'll touch on in a second. And then there's the 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 love triangle of Mark Ruffalo, uh, Kirsten Dunst, and what's his fucking name? The the old doctor guy. He's a guy. Uh, Tom Harry Wilkinson. Potter, dude. Tom I don't Wilkinson. know if he's in Harry Potter. He just I looked at him and thought Harry Potter when I first saw the movie. Well, he is British, which I think comes through because his American accent isn't super wonderful. Um I really hope this guy was in Harry Potter because if he wasn't, I'm going to feel like an asshole. I'm not seeing a lot of Harry Potter here, buddy. No, there is not. There's no Harry Potter here at all. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. You made that up. Anyway, there's that. Can't wait to find out what I was thinking of while looking through his filmography. (laughs) And what I think both of those subplots do well in aiding in, in a little bit of foreshadowing of the rest of the film and, and kind of informing what would be happening after the movie ends is that, you know, it later gets revealed that Kirsten Dunst had had the procedure herself. She had elected to get her memory erased from how we are supposed to believe it being told by uh, Tom Wilkinson that she elected to have the procedure done to remove Tom Wilkinson from her mind because they had had an affair and she didn't want to continue with the affair. Tom Wilkinson, obviously at some level didn't want the affair to continue because he had a wife and clearly that did not work because she had to be told this after she started coming on to him again, getting caught by his wife again and realizing that she had still had feelings for him as we'll, you know, eventually see, even after the procedure, there are still feelings there as well for Clementine, Kirsten, not Kirsten Dunst, Kate Winslet's character for Jim Carrey. And it's almost like it's it's like three different phases. You know, Jim Carrey currently going through the erasure procedure, right? We have Kirsten mm-hmm. Dunst, who I guess is relatively soon after it, long after it's tough to really tell with that. And then there's, and, and there's, um, she's probably a little bit, way, a little ways after it. And then there's, uh, Kate Winslet, who's, who's kind of in between the two of them. And mm-hmm. at each phase, the memory of the person that they're trying to forget or some internal feeling of the person they're trying to forget remains because Jim Carrey is battling within his own psyche to try to you know retain whatever bits and pieces of Kate Winslet he can. Kate Winslet clearly doesn't 
strictly remember uh, Jim Carrey, but she knows that something's wrong. And then uh, uh, Kirsten Dunst is still acting upon feelings that she has for Tom Wilkinson, even if she had not remembered why that, that, that those feelings had pre-existed in a different version of her own mind. And so it really all that combines to show that this procedure is not going to be effective then because love wins in the end. Oh, <laughs> that's true. And it, it, it's an yes, interesting way to, to show that because again, and that's what this movie does. I think so fucking well is it shows pain and anguish, but because people are going without, they're depriving themselves of something that makes themselves happy for whatever human reason it is, spite or lust, whatever. But they're 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 losing some of themselves, and, and they they're never going to truly be able to move on from it because mm-hmm. they they know that that's what they want. They want to be loved and and to love this specific person. And it's a very very interesting way of going about telling, you know, that side of 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 a, of a romance. What do you think about and those I, uh, those subplotted guys there? Oh, I I love it. I love the beauty of the way that they're telling this, and the fact that. You know, there's so many romantic comedies that you watch, and I know you've seen plenty of them, and I've seen plenty of them where you're sitting there watching it, and at the base level, it's okay. This is a entertaining movie because its sole purpose is to be entertaining to just the largest common denominator, just the biggest number of people we can entertain with this movie. That's what we're trying to do, and it's just it's boring, and the story is never realistic. You watch it and it's like, this is never going to happen. This doesn't happen. And it's its own cliche of like, this is not a movie. This is not a fairy tale. Like, it doesn't happen like this. And obviously, it doesn't happen the way it happens in this movie. But at its very core, the story of this being a conflict, not with some crazy fairy godmother or the world getting in their way or some miscommunication that hides that hid their true feelings. It's like, no, these two people have serious problems with the way their relationship is and the way they go about, I guess, feeding into and and taking away from the relationship. And they genuinely are reconnecting with one another and building a, you know, starting from square one, realizing that, long found you know attraction and affection they have for one another or at least jim carrey does in his mind with her and then she's kind of separate in her own way i honestly don't know how those are connected and i need to kind of give up on my previous thought about kate winslet is basically a self-conscious representation of her in jim carrey's mind so when he's unconscious He's having conversations with Kate Winslet. Oh, no, basically. It's, it's a manifestation that Jim Carrey creates. Right. And Kate Winslet has a line that says that as, as well, somewhere in there. And I can, I, that's how I viewed it. That's how I understood it. That's what I considered. But I don't know the level of carryover between the post operation her and the her in Jim Carrey's mind. Because she's going through the same reactions and issues that Jim Carrey is. We see that with the way she deals with uh, Frodo. And I just, 
I either wasn't paying close enough attention or was too inebriated watching this movie to kind of see if there was a connecting piece with the two. Um, I'm not sure. Obviously, uh, the version of her that exists in Jim Carrey's mind is stern, but also agreeable and very much so wanting to help. And it's tough to get a read of if there's some level of idealization in there or if it's a realistic description of who they were when they weren't fighting because you don't get too many of the scenes like that. Um, But I don't think I don't think they need to be too connected for the the film to still work on that level. You know what I mean? I'm not saying they need to. And, you know, it works perfectly fine with or without that connection, that bridge. I'm just more curious about the not the ending of the film but the results of the film like how how do they work out in the end i want to know i don't want a sequel please don't you know misconstrue that as me asking for a sequel because it would be unwatchable but just like a hey post something on twitter mr coffin i i think that also is what makes the uh kirsten dunst subplot interesting because at the end of the movie she she moves on from tom wilkinson Mm. even though she had an affair with Tom Wilkinson pre-film, got the procedure done, and then had a second kind of affair with him, she still ends up moving on from it. And I think, you know, that part of that is there to show that this procedure isn't even healthy emotionally. You know, you can't just put all your feelings completely... You can't just repress emotion even if you were to go so far as to completely remove any thought of a person, there has to be some level of actual acceptance, closure, and finality in in what you're experiencing, reaching uh, a true point of growth. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to effectively move on and become who you need to become in the wake of that. And Kirsten Dunst comes to that realization at the end and, you know, quits her job, fucks over the whole company <laughs> and gets together with young skinny Mark Ruffalo. And, you know, I, I think that's also a really nice thing to include in this movie because it's not just that they everyone gets together with who they get together with at the end because love prevailed. It's also a, you know, an introspective thing for her, which is this wasn't the right way to do this. And I will can be better if I actually grapple with it and start fucking Mark Ruffalo. And he's a laugh, but that's, that's... <laughs> oh. oh, I was on board with this until we got to this. Oh boy. Lay down that big green pipe, Daddy. Oh. <laughs> oh, but that was okay. a real point somewhere in there. I'm uh, I'm sure it was. <laughs> Oh, uh, the only other thing that really we have in the middle there, we've talked about this movie for a while, so I'm not really sure how much we want to spend time on it, is, well, kind of the main part of the film, which is all of what happens within Jim Carrey's mind during the scenes in which he's getting his memories erased and he's trying desperately to understand what's happening in certain parts and hide some shred of Kate Winslet somewhere within his mind so that he can have that when he leaves and undo the mistakes he made in real life after he awakens from sleep life so i know where we we've left ourselves a little bit tight but what do you think about the uh i don't know 
in, in internal psyche parts of this movie? Um, the first time they come up, I thought they were going to be really kind of cheesy and stuff. Just I typically don't enjoy in films, and they just kind of rub me the wrong way, and it just always makes me enjoy the movie less. But I again, I just really enjoyed how they were presented and just how it opened up you know his mindset what he was going through what he was thinking you know as they're intending and i i very much enjoyed it yeah i i think it also lends itself so well to this you know combination of practical effect and cgi effect that really adds to the largesse of both the drama that you're witnessing and the highness of the concept and that's obviously again something that's very christopher nolan you know it's it's mm-hmm. very i'm going to incorporate as many effects per square inch as i possibly can because it'll help make the point that what i'm doing is super cool and hey you know what it it usually yeah it's usually pretty effective way of doing things and in this it really works well and it also helps draw very clear lines not that you necessarily need them but it can help draw very clear lines between what is going on in jim carrey's head and what's a flashback to a memory or you know what's what's something that's happening present day that is not in jim carrey's mind you know it can help Mm -hmm. delineate between those two um you and your vocab words today killing it love it (laughs) Uh, all right, so uh, l- l- let's just move into final ratings and reviews here. I am a big fan of this movie. This is my movie. I'm, I'm starting here. Motherfucker. Uh, I, I, I love this movie. I, I really got to say, I was a little bit afraid I was going to, like, you know, low-key hate it. And I absolutely loved it. I, I sh- you never doubt Charlie Kaufman. Um, it, it, it's a phenomenal take on, on a love story. And it's such a satisfying ending for what otherwise feels like a very dark movie that i i am just enamored by it i absolutely love it i'm giving it a four and a half i am too i think it's a near perfect love story that is unique and heartfelt enough and pure enough to kind of fit into or at least most people will be able to come away with something relatable something they understand and something they can connect with so I enjoy it. Four and a half. Four and a half. Four and a half near perfect score. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Good job, Corwin. You're a goddamn professional. <laughs> All right, let's talk about 1996's The Birdcage. Came out in 1996. It was directed by Mike Nichols. I had no idea. I must have known at some point that this was a Mike Nichols movie. I can't believe I forgot. Wow. Mike Nichols did this? That's funny. That's um that's different from his usual. Um Yeah, Mike Nichols, you know yeah. the guy who did The Graduate and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know, won an Oscar for the remains of the or no, he was nominated for the remains of the day. Um yeah, it's like five five time Oscar nominated director. I had no idea. I must have known at some point he directed this, but that's very funny. Um anyway, this was written so directed by mike nichols it was uh a play it's based on the play by jean poiret as how i'm going to assume that's pronounced the early versions of the screenplay were done by francis weber eduard molnaro marcelo denon 
and Jean Poiret. This version of the screenplay that you witnessed was written by Elaine May. So that's all. The way you enunciated Elaine um, really makes you sound like you fucking hate that woman. (laughs) (laughs) Elaine. Uh, Yeah. All right. This movie was starred Robin Williams, Nathan Lane, and Gene Hackman, as well as an appearance from very young and sexy Hank Azaria. Famous Simpsons voice. And Brock Meyer. This had an estimated budget of 31 million and a cumulative worldwide gross of 185 million. So also very much so in the same kind of ratio as uh, Eternal Sunshine, which we just talked about. So again, very fitting and you used to get this from comedies all the time. So it's 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 yeah, cool to see. Uh, this film's tagline is outline description of film. That can't be the tagline. It doesn't even make any fucking it sense. Cannot. It, it sounds like someone cannot. meant to write tagline. And, and yep. so one of the other taglines, which we'll call the real tagline, is come as you are, which works very well. <laughs> oh, man. This, this movie. This movie. Oh, you're so good. It was nominated for one Oscar. It was nominated for Best Art Direction Set Direction for Bo Welch and Cheryl Karasik. And it is about... A gay cabaret owner and his drag queen companion agreed to put up a false straight front so that their son can enjoy them to his introduce them, I should say, to his fiance's right wing moralistic parents. Corwin Heller, this was your pick. You tell me about it. This movie absolutely blew me away. I have the first time for you, right? This was a first time for me. It's been a long time since I've watched a Nathan Lane film and a decent amount of time since I've watched a um, Robin Williams film. And this movie just absolutely blew me away. I fucking loved this. I can't, I haven't laughed at a movie like this in, so, in as long as I can remember in so long. Nathan Lane is one of the funniest human beings on earth. Robin Williams needs no additional praise. Hank Azaria is a fucking chameleon. This, oh, I fucking adore this film. I could not praise it enough. Yeah, this is, it's such a great movie on a comedic level because it has, it's it's a joke a minute, which is absolutely something you should expect if you have Robin Williams in your movie because that is what he does. Mm-hmm. It's the Robin Williams way. Um, and it's never sticky. It's always like, that's just who he is on camera and they just got it. And it's also so well executed slapstick, like mm-hmm. Hank Azaria, everything without the shoes, slip and sliding around the kitchen, like, so much just wonderful slapstick. And uh. and plus, you know, like you got the the very telenovela over dramatic Nathan Lane in this, who actually does a ton to be the emotional center of the film without actually trying too hard to be that. It's a very interesting kind of role for 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 Mr. Lane there, since he is asked to do so much in the comedic sense, ends up being probably more so in in a you know emotional grounding and emotional development sense. But uh, and then just the the plot also just moves, man. It it just goes, and you get There's all the classic nineties. 
No, never. You get all the classic 90s stuff with with the two dates of the prom situation that happens. And <laughs> oh, man, it's it's great. It's 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 <sighs> wonderful. So let's I guess also talk. Uh, I guess let's start, I should say, as we get into it uh, with maybe just the general premise, because it is. Obviously a wild, not wild, but it, it's a very goofy premise for the time, but it looks even more ridiculous in a past, in a, you know, in, in retrospect, now that, you know, introducing someone to gay couples is not new, even for Republican politicians, you know, the idea of being associated with a gay couple at this point is a political asset. So to have something like this kind of even be a thought, it's much less of a thought today. It's not to dismiss any of the difficulties that come with being gay, especially in um, conservative leaning areas. But I think in terms of the political nature of this, it's probably not as severe as it was in 96. And so the basic concept here is that through a one-time fling, super fertile, Robin Williams ends up having a kid with uh, Diane West, and that kid uh, is dating the daughter of a Republican politician. She wants to meet his family with her politician family. They're all coming down to South Beach, and Robin Williams has got to pretend to be straight and lists um, Diane West, Diane Weist. No. Oh, wait, no, it's not. That's not Diane. Weiss. It's uh, Christine Barinsky. Damn it. I never get this shit right. Uh, enlist Christine Barinsky to come down to, to play mommy. Nathan Lane has to go fuck off or be a straight friend. And they have to do a do a gotcha. They got to do a gotcha to to Gene Hackman. So just from a premise perspective, Corwin, are you on board? I'm on board with the situation. I can't say I would handle it the same way, but the idea of making the idea of allowing Nathan Lane to be a part of this, but having him be a straight uncle and then bringing in the mother that you haven't met once in your life to pull this off is fantastic. It's a wonderful premise. And boy, it couldn't have gone any better. Yeah, I, I think what makes also the part of the premise work so well is that it's not uh, dads, I'm embarrassed or um, whatever. It's it's mm-hmm. like, I love my dads and I'm sure that my girlfriend would love my dads as well. But there is this existential pressure from the greater republican base that is kind of forcing a hand here and obviously that's still a shit reason to do something like this but it takes Mm -hmm. some of the pressure off of i think each of the individual parties which makes it feel a little less grimy even though it's still you know pretty shitty like i like that i would would say that there's my dad's like that that's a good part i agree and the way he comes to that i really liked I can't say that that was the vibe I felt throughout the night, throughout the dinner. He definitely gave off that 
this is not something I'm comfortable with you being and acting this way. And I need you to be someone completely different from who you are. I need you to fake being someone else, hiding who you truly are for me, because that's not something I can openly acknowledge when they're here. And obviously he comes around in a really nice way and really makes it a special you know, makes a special toast to his dad's, but you still see some of that throughout. Right. I, I th- let me, cause you're right. So let me, let me clarify a little bit on, uh, I guess what I'm trying to, to drive at. It's not so much internal as it is external, but he still comes to, there's still the realization that that's wrong too. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think makes, because if it was to be an internal kind of thing, obviously it's selfish. I need you to do this because I don't want to make a bad impression with my girlfriend's parents. Like that is inherently selfish, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not an internal embarrassment or well, it is an internal fear, but there is an external reason for it that I think if it was internal, the movie would be significantly darker. It'd be, I think, yes. a, a lot heavier yes. of a movie. So it, that takes yes. some of, that's what I mean by it takes some of the pressure off a little bit. Um, since, I would have yeah. disliked it significantly more if it was a darker turn like they were, you know, showing. And that plus definitely then would it, have turned me off. And then it, it gives room for the conversation to be less about how do we handle this from a, a straight guy to a gay guy conversation. And let's be more of a, how do I handle this from a gay guy to a gay guy conversation? It's like how, because mm-hmm. you have you have two sides of it. You know, it's very it's a very Maccabean situation. You know, do we convert and 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 spare ourselves from the Greeks, or do we stay Jews and burn that oil for eight days? And and Robin Williams is like, hey man, love me some Zeus. And Nathan Lane is like, hand me that menorah. We're gonna light this bitch up. <laughs> and. That's that's a real conversation that comes up in in all walks of life, you know, all all different types of aspects of situations. Is you know, do we knuckle under the social pressure for whatever reason that is, or whatever pressure, if if it's social or otherwise, or do we, you know, march on and act as who we are and force for the world to eventually come to accept us uh, if they ever do, and seeing also the sides of this, and this is where Nathan Lane comes into so much effect, I think, for carrying so much of the water for this movie, is that Robin Williams' side, which is let's just knuckle under for so much of the film, is angry and afraid, right? There's a lot of shouting at Nathan Lane, like, come on, like, let's just do it. You're being so dramatic, blah, blah, blah. And for Mm -hmm. Nathan Lane, it's personal, it's sad, it's about identity. You know, it's like, I don't want to be anything other than your husband. You know, I, or I, did they use wife? I forget if, what term the two of them use with each other. But regardless, um, I, I, I don't think I can be that for me. I can't force myself into that box. I don't want to be in that box. It hurts me inside to do that. And that's where so much of that, you know, the emotional turn that this movie takes really comes from, even though Nathan Lane is, doing a very big over the top kind of thing, it ends up being so emotionally impactful because that's the basis for what ends up turning everybody around and going like, no, no, we were all assholes here. Nathan Lane was right the whole time. 
Nathan Lane is a national treasure, and we should celebrate him more. He's so fucking good. I must have seen Mouse Hunt yes! half a dozen times. I had it on DVD. I, <laughs> I fucking love that. I had this. Uh, me too. It is so fucking funny. So good. The Cheese Factory. Oh. oh beautiful. So beautiful. What what is it with the uh what they ride down the hill like a bathtub? Like a sled? Oh, I should watch that movie again soon. Yeah, me too. I haven't seen that fucking shit in years. Also, shout out to Nathan Lane, fellow Jersey boy. Oh. Jersey okay. City, baby. Dun, 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 yeah, he's not actually i was about to say he wasn't in the movie jersey boys but he might have been on the play version of jersey boys he is a very renowned uh, stage actor anyway uh, tell me tell me corwin hello tell me about hank azaria in this i adore this man not as much as i adore nathan lane at least in this but oh my god he is such a good fucking actor he genuinely is just a chameleon. He is any character you could ever possibly conceive. And what I think makes him so good in, in this in particular is he soaks up every scene he's in without like he j- will just appear for a moment and then disappear again. And that moment will be one of like one of your lasting impressions of of that entire scene he still seems so effectively in such little actual screen time when he's when he's there it's he does his job so fucking well what'd you say about nathan land jersey boys um i don't think he was in jersey boys i don't think he was in the movie i wouldn't be surprised if he did it on on broadway i don't know but who knows i don't know he uh, was Timon? Yeah. Lion King, baby. What? Yeah, he you no know one half of Timon way. and Pumba. He was the Timon and Timon and Pumba. I have uh I went and saw the Lion King on Broadway and I got a little like stuffed Timon from it. And it's just like it was a stuffed animal that like I was a kid, so like I I loved collecting stuffed animals, but my mom was like, This is too nice. You can't play with it. And I'm going to put it up on this shelf and you can look at it, but you just can't touch it. I'm like, this is the worst fucking stuffed animal I've ever fucking got. What the fuck? So, yeah, that's my Timon story. Heartbreak. Heartbreak. Just like Mufasa. Mm. Mm. No, he got it coming to him. Uh, Nathan Lane was never in a play version of Jersey Boys either. Thank you for looking that up. He was in the 1992 production of Guys and Dolls as Nathan Detroit. <laughs> that must be a pornography movie. <laughs> oh, no, no. Oh, that's his character's name. Okay. It just happened to also be his first name. Okay. Clearly, I do not. Clearly, I have not watched Guys and Dolls in a long time because I do not remember a character named Nathan Detroit. I don't know what it is. Guys and Dolls? Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a play. It's a movie, too. Sure. Okay. Really? Uh, it's got Brando in it. Okay. 
I haven't Probably. seen his entire filmography. Well, you're wasting your life. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't spend every waking moment of my formative years just sitting and watching film on just an endless loop. I mean, you have no one but yourself to blame for that. And I'm aware of this, and that's a choice that I have to live with, but some of us aren't that lucky. Ah, uh, yes, that's what I call myself fortunate every single day at work i would wander over to to where josh was working and he would just have some foreign black and white film just going on his laptop endless loop it's my world and we're all just living in it that is correct all right uh so i guess that brings us to gene hackman and it, it and it's funny because when you when you see gene hackman's in a movie you think to yourself ah we must, we're probably going to be getting a whole bunch of Gene Hackman. Mm-hmm. And you get some Gene Hackman. But the Gene Hackman you get isn't even like a really interesting Gene Hackman. The Gene Hackman in this movie could have been any old white guy. And it's yes. kind of interesting that it ends up actually being Gene Hackman. It's like a Shyamalan twist in there. Gene Hackman the whole time. And... <laughs> and I, you know, it almost lends you to wonder why it needed to be Gene Hackman because it really c- could have been anybody. And I think it would have fit the bill. And obviously, you know, Gene Hackman, I really just can't say his name enough in this, in this sentence here. Uh, Gene Hackman. Oh, thanks. Gene Hackman <laughs> does stodgy old crotchety white guy very well. He's been doing it literally since the seventies when he was like in his thirties. <laughs> He, he has been 55 for 60 years. It, it's hilarious. Um, well, I also think that there's some degree of weight that comes with a casting of Gene Hackman, something that like lends an importance to that role, much the way that mm-hmm. they might be ascribing an importance to a politician. You know, it's, it's like, ooh, he's a politician, big time guy. So even mm-hmm. though he's not being asked to do anything deep and resonant here, He's really mostly just kind of along for the ride. Um, the fact that it is a name guy that you know, I think adds a little bit of importance to that role because if it was Joe Schmo, the white dude, you probably don't care what Joe Schmo, the white dude, thinks about you. And that might translate into your viewing experience in some kind of subconscious way. But having Gene Hackman be there the whole time makes it feel, I think, a little bit more important. You know what I mean? That's exactly how I looked at it. I mean, if you have just some actor that showed up for an audition never seen him before no name just some guy uncle joe from willy wonka fuck whoever that's just a character of a politician that is the father of your son's fiance to be regardless it you don't give a shit at all but because it's gene hackman you know hey gene hackman's not going to just be in this movie if this guy's gene hackman He's not going to be in this movie if he doesn't have an uber important role. Man just gets paid too much money. So I'm 100% with you. It just, you look at it and it's like, I need to care about what this guy thinks. And this is someone that's going to be important later. Yeah. And you know, this is, this is where the, the role of casting director in a production comes so much into play because, you know, it, it's easy to, look at a guy who kills their performance, you know, like, mm-hmm. like Nathan Lane and Robin Williams do here and go that it was cast very well. Cause it's, it's obvious in that respect. It's obvious you fucking pleb. Uh, <laughs> but, 
but you know it, it, it just just to, i'm actually gonna look up the name of who was the casting director on this just to shout them out because sure. this is really this is where it gets it gets made and, and you again it might be even e- easy to say well you cast the biggest name people you can get and so you if you get gene hackman you cast gene hackman and it's like yeah you know to a large extent that is also true but it, it's considerations like this like who do we want representing the role of such an important person who's going to have that weightiness to them that will make the role and the opinions of that character feel more impactful mm-hmm. and a guy like say it on three one two three gene, gene hackman. hackman it'll make you feel it cast and directors on this was uh ellen lewis who has won she was also the casting director for uh the departed wolf of wall street league of their own and ready player one maybe maybe not what? maybe fuck yourself oh Ugh, the departed fuck you fuck your mother she's tired fuck my father uh, <laughs> she has also won two emmys once for boardwalk empire and once for angels in america so shout out to ellen lewis our other casting director was Juliet Taylor, who was also the casting director on Mississippi Burning, Sleepless in Seattle, Hannah and Her Sisters, and Bullets Over Broadway. She also has an Emmy win for Angels in America, shared with Ellen Lewis. So this two, clearly a duo of sorts. Um, congrats to these two wonderful women. They did a killer job of this shit. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure what else I have to say about about the birdcage. Do you have any other uh, birdcage um, thoughts? I really like the son, like the actor who played the son. I enjoyed him. I was thinking, man, I wish he was in more things. And I can't tell you a single thing that he was in other than this. Um, otherwise, I just I don't want to say this is my favorite comedy. Now, I don't want to say that you know this is something i'm going to rewatch 50 times but my goodness this is an incredible film that is absolutely one of my favorites this is a film i'm going to go back and like cherish every time i watch it and remember how fantastic it was to watch for the first time it, it's such a sweet movie and i i think the sun you know also plays a, a, a big part in not making this movie feel quite so shitty since it'd be very easy for him to come off as whiny and homophobic and annoying. And instead he comes Mm -hmm. off as affable and homophobic, which way better. Gotta say. Oh, sure. Um, Yeah. This is, it's, it's a very, it's always nice when a movie's about love. Oh, (laughs) two wildly different movies about love here today. (laughs) No, really couldn't be different. But hey, yeah, that's what we're here to do. We're here to provide quality discussion on a whole disparate range of pictures of oh, pictures. Um, all right. Oh, give me a give me a stars. Give me some stars for this. What do you got stars wise? Out of five. Out of five. Five. Lock it in. Same here, buddy. Five. Lock Boom. it in. High five. Boom. Check the gate. High five. Woo-hoo. Hey, Josh. Yeah. Watch that, Pinky. <laughs> um, all right, right on. Then let's get into next week's picks. Corwin Cheller, what are you gonna what are you gonna go with? I'm gonna go with another film that I have not seen, and I feel ashamed for not seeing it, not having seen it. And I also need some more Nathan Lane Nathan Lane in my life. 
I'm Nathan going Lane. with the producers. Oh, I go with the remake. Yeah. Ah, uh, all right. Is is the other version the better version? Oh, by a mile. I mean, one of them is Mel Brooks's first movie where he won an Oscar for screenwriting, and one of them is well, not that. Is the remake objectively bad? It's tough because I've seen the original. And so having for me, seen the original, is it yes. objectively bad? Is it objectively bad for people or for the Joshua Tracy I endlessly fight on this show with? I've I'll put it <laughs> this way. I've never heard anyone say a good thing about this movie. Okay. Okay. Let's watch Mel Brooks. Okay. All right. So that's the 1967 version. <laughs> Of the of dub producers, one of my favorite movies. Very excited to rewatch that. And once Ooh. again, Corbin, we're going to be having rather different picks as you go lighthearted and I go sad. <laughs> Yay! Uh, I'm going to go with the 1969 film Midnight Cowboy. Oh, this was on my list. Oh, well, Midnight Cowboy. Cross it off, buddy. We are here to feel. We're sex bomb. We're here to make you feel sad about death and stuff. <laughs> Oh, uh, John! One, Voight. two, three, go! I can't wait to buy his car. Who? John Voight. Oh yeah. yeah with There's the a pencil, pencil marks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is John Voight's car. John Voight drove that car. Yeah, yeah. Oh God. Yeah, and I was just a wackadoo politician. Well, Republican uh, spokesperson, yeah. but oh yeah. well. Hey, he, John did not, he did not turn out great. Not Stop all child act. actors turn out great. You know? Child actor? No. He's just no. so old, it seems like a child actor. Well, at least he gave the world a equally crazy but super hot daughter. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. I would say a much better crazy, for sure. Yeah, you know, I guess John Voight's crazy is like... Let's Evil keep the gays from getting crazy. married, and Angelina Jolie's yeah. crazy is like, let's adopt all the kids from Africa. Yeah, and that's that's and Carrie, a way better, way better crazy. And uh, oh, what's that guy's fucking name? Bobby, uh, Billy Bob Thornton carries blood around my neck and a Billy Bob vial. Thornton is the most made up sounding Southern boy name on the fucking planet. It sounds like a joke. It sounds like. So what you say, we were trying to be derisive about how people name their kids in the South. Why don't you come on over here, Billy Bob Thornton? If you Google Billy Wait, Bob get Thornton, off your sister, Billy Bob. If you Google Billy Bob Thornton and go to photos, the at least for me, the first one is him looking connivingly off into the distance with the single worst soul patch I've ever seen. The he still second has that fucking thing. Yeah, uh, the second one is him looking like he smoked just three bowls of meth beforehand with just this wild, crazy look in his eyes. And the next five are him standing next to Angelina Jolie. (laughs) Because that's the last time his career was relevant. (laughs) Yeah, touche. I got to say, and this is so, so irrelevant to what we've been talking about, but we're here and this is going to be a hot take. But I can't enjoy any movie that Billy Bob Thornton's in because Ooh. I can't stand the way he looks. Like I don't, I, I'm not. It's not a comment on his literal acting. 
It's about who he is as a person and the fact that I don't like his face. I find him to be so aggravating in the face that I, I can't I can't enjoy what he does. I really enjoy Armageddon, but Fuck otherwise, yourself. no, you there's, don't. I do. I, it's one of those movies I watched a ton as a little kid and just grew up loving. It's just such a guilty pleasure movie. Well, Josh is dead. I, I, I they are, are they are oil drillers who are going to fly into space to blow up an asteroid with a nuke. It is fucking Michael Bayhem to the max, and it's so fucking stupid. It's perfect. What if I told you Billy Bob? The Thor's one guy's the the fat Kevin from the Office guy just. His biggest wish is just to never pay taxes again. I love it. What have I told you that Billy Bob Thornton's last credited movie appearance was this year in a movie called Hollywood.com, where he played the boxmaster? This man's career is non-existent these days. Yeah, it's ugly. He has an Oscar. Somehow, some way. All right. Well, I guess we can wrap it up here then. If you want to follow, oh, so just to, just to reiterate, next week's picks: 1967's The Producer, 1969's Midnight Cowboy. Check them out before the show or not. Can't give a fuck what you do with your personal life. If you'd like to follow the show, you can do so at uh, Big Screen Juice on Twitter. We never post from there, so you can follow Corwin on Twitter at Corwin Heller. You can follow myself on Twitter at Joshua D. Tracy. And if you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next week, y'all have a good one. Bye.